show turned on here. There we go. All right, if you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Revelation, uh, we find ourselves in chapter 2, looking at Jesus' third letter to the seven churches. If you're looking at the uh, black Bible in the chair you're sitting in, that should be found on page uh, 1029. I'll give you a moment to turn there with me and encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along throughout this morning as we dive into God's Word this morning. It was the English poet William Henley who is remembered to this day for a, a poem that he titled Invictus, where he writes, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Henley wrote that poem when he was a 27-year-old man suffering from tuberculosis. And what's interesting and but sad is that as an atheist, Henley had no place to turn for strength and hope and help other than by looking within himself as the poem reflects. Now over the years, the poem Invictus has inspired many people because it paints a, a picture of courageous resolve that we want, we admire, we hear as heroic. But the million dollar question in light of this poem is, are we masters of our fate? Are we really the captains of our soul. Well, we can tell ourselves that we are, as Henley did, but the reality is, is that pretending to be God is the reason why so many of us are tired, exhausted, and weary. It's why so many of us at times are discontent. And herein lies the danger for us. Discontentment leaves us vulnerable to compromises that the enemy brings to us as shortcuts. Shortcuts for peace, shortcuts for rest, shortcuts for having control over tomorrow. As I mentioned earlier, we come to the third letter that Jesus had written in the book of Revelation. Uh, he had written to seven churches, which are in modern-day western Turkey, and today is the third of those seven letters. We've seen in his first letter to the church in Ephesus that one of the marks of a true and living church is this vibrant love both for God and for others. In his second letter to the church in Smyrna, it was the mark of a willingness, because of this love for God, a willingness to suffer for his name. In his letter to the church in Pergamum, this third letter we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that the mark of a true living church is a refusal to compromise. Let's listen to Jesus' words to this church, starting in verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you have held fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you 
where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. We've noticed as we've gone through the first two letters that each of the seven letters has this six-fold pattern that we're going to see over and over in each of the letters. First, there's a greeting. So this is to the church in Pergamum. Second, there's an attribute of Jesus that he borrows from this revelation of the glorified Jesus in chapter 1. Third, Jesus issues his evaluation of that specific church, both what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. Fourth, there's a call to persevere or a call to repent. Fifth, there's an invitation from Jesus to hear, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then sixth, there's a promise, a promise to the one who conquers or overcomes. We're going to see that sixfold pattern over and over in each of these seven letters. And so with that pattern in mind, I want us to draw attention to this second, the second characteristic of this letter, the attribute of Jesus that we see written to the church in Pergamum. Notice in verse 12, the attribute of Jesus, borrowed from the Revelation chapter 1. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We saw that attribute of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 16. Now he selects that and presents himself to the church in Pergamum as the one who has this sword, this two-edged sword. Jesus. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus made time to spend and talk to young children and care for them. Jesus, in his humility, willingly laid down his life on the cross and died. Those are all true things about Jesus. But it's not the whole picture of Jesus. Jesus is also this victorious king. He is also a warrior king who has a two-edged sword, who makes war and is ready to do battle. So why is that? Why does Jesus, the Prince of Peace, present himself to the church in Pergamum using the language of war? Why is he ready for battle? Well, simply put, because the church in Pergamum was in a battle. And friends, 2,000 years later, our church and every church, the church, this church, First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro, and every church is in a battle. Not a battle against flesh and blood, but a battle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So how can we win the battle when there are endless opportunities 
to compromise. If you're taking notes, point number one is this. In persecution, hold fast to Christ. In persecution, hold fast to Christ. We're going to see this in verse 13 of Jesus' letter. When Jesus gives his assessment to the church in Pergamum, he starts with what they're doing well. Notice in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, if you are the mayor of Pergamum, or you're on the city council of Pergamum, you're not really excited about Jesus' description of your city, right? Because Jesus comes and he pulls no punches. This is where Satan dwells. This city is the throne of Satan. It's not really what you want on your city's welcome sign when people come into your town, but Jesus tells the truth. So why is Pergamum referred to as Satan's throne? Well, it might be because that was where the center of the emperor, Roman emperor worship was, or it might be because Pergamum housed the temple of Asclepios, who was a Greek god of healing. And if you're familiar with this Greek god, the symbol of Asclepios was a snake, similar to how Satan appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Whatever the case, Pergamum was filled with people opposed to God. It was a city known for being filled with people who were under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. It was a city known for wickedness, a city known for the celebration of things that grieved or angered God. That made Pergamum a hostile place to live if you're a follower of Jesus, a hostile place to live, a dangerous place to live if you're a Christian. And we hear that in verse 13 about this man named Antipas who was martyred. The reason they killed, the city killed Antipas was because he was a faithful witness to Christ. He refused to worship the emperor. He refused to worship the other gods and he was martyred for his faith. Very likely, his execution was public in the, in the town square this excruciating death, in order to pressure the rest of the church, to make him an object lesson to the rest of the church. It's the city's way of saying, listen, if you don't get in line and worship the emperor, this could happen to you too. But by God's grace, the church in Pergamum did not buckle. They didn't compromise. They they held fast to Jesus when it came to this outward attack, this this persecution, the threat of persecution, and Jesus commends them for holding fast his name. Jesus' name refers to who he is. It's his character. So to be a Christian, in part, means to accept Jesus' name. It means to accept who Jesus is. Fundamentally, we believe that Jesus is God, he is Lord, he is the king, and so we submit to him as such. And it means that we believe he is savior. We believe, as Christians, he is God and he is savior. 
as one writer notes, the irreducible minimum of Christian belief is that Jesus is the unique God-man, fully God, fully man, who died for our sins and who was raised from death to be our Savior. We may not fully understand everything there is to know about the person and the work of Jesus, but Christians believe and act on those truths because conviction leads to commitment. So holding fast to Jesus means believing and accepting the truth about who he is. But it's not just mere mental knowledge that gets the right answer on the theological quiz. It's also trust, faith. That's why Jesus goes on to say that even under the threat of death, this church did not deny their faith or their trust in me. So when the enemy comes out in the open, threatens persecution, denounce Christ or will kill you, the church in Pergamum didn't cave. They stood their ground. They held fast to Christ. And verse 13 is Jesus' encouragement to them. I know where you dwell. I know what you're up against. I know the pressure you're under, and you're holding fast to me. Way to go, church in Pergamum. And I wish that was the end of the story for the church in Pergamum. But Satan is sly. He is relentless. And so if his visible threat of persecution doesn't work, he goes into his bag of goodies and schemes, and he chooses a different threat, this time a hidden threat. You ever heard of the Greek mythology, the the, the idea of the Trojan horse? Trojan horse was this giant wooden horse that the Greeks gave to the city of Troy when they were unable to beat them in battle. And so the city of Troy says, oh, look at this. What nice gift of defeat that they're giving to us. We're going to take this as a trophy of our war. We're going to roll it into the city of Troy as a celebration of our victory. But what they didn't know was that inside this giant, hollow, wooden horse were enemy soldiers. So while they celebrated all night, they went to bed, they fell asleep, and then once they fell asleep, out came these soldiers. They opened the city gate, let the rest of the army in, and the city of Troy was defeated. So yes, point number one in persecution, we must hold fast to Christ. But point number two, reject the Trojan horse of compromise. Reject the Trojan horse of compromise. And we're going to see this in verses 14 through 16 of our text. Jesus goes on in verse 14, look at the text with me. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus begins with his encouragement and his, his, his affirmation of what they're doing well, and then he turns to his critique, what he has against them. His critique was that they held to the teaching. Of Balaam. They held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Interestingly, New Testament scholar Greg Beale notes that in Hebrew, the, the name Balaam 
and the Greek name Nicolaitan mean the same thing. Both of those names, Nicolaitan and Balaam, both of those words mean the one who conquers a people. So Balaam and the Nicolaitans are likely the same group, synonyms, for the same group of false teachers. And notice how in verse 14 that Jesus refers to this teaching, the teaching of Balaam, as a stumbling block. If you unpack that word, a stumbling block means a trap. It's a word that means a trap. So just as a hunter camouflages a trap in order to capture and kill an animal, a stumbling block is a teaching that looks harmless. No big deal. It looks harmless on the camouflage outside, but it's a trap that kills the one who takes the bait of that false teaching, just like a Trojan horse. So what was, though, what was the content of the teaching of Balaam? How do we understand what the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans was? Well, thankfully, we have an Old Testament context that explains this for us. And so later this afternoon, this afternoon, I'd encourage you to take some time and read through Numbers 22 through 25. It's this account where, maybe you've heard of it before, where Balaam was actually stopped and rebuked by a donkey. So if you remember that story, that's where that comes from, Numbers 22 through 25. But for the sake of time, let me summarize that story for you. After wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, the Israelites were headed to the promised land and they have this major victory over the Amorites. And so when the Moabites, the neighboring, the neighboring nations, saw this, they were terrified because they saw God was with them. Now, everyone knew that Balaam was a local prophet and he, what he cursed was cursed and what he blessed was blessed. And so Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, when he is terrified by the people of Israel, he goes, he gathers a bunch of money together, and he goes to hire Balaam to pay Balaam, the prophet, to curse God's people so they don't mess with the Moabites. Now, the prophet Balaam, he should have known better. He should have known that God was not going to curse the people that he had blessed. But when he sees all the gold that Balak had, he's like, well, let me just make sure. Let me pray about it. It was clear. Don't, you don't need to pray about this. But he, let me pray about this. So he prays about it. And God says, no. So he goes back and says, no, I, I, can't, I can't do this. He refuses Balak's offer. So Balak goes back and he sweetens the deal. More gold, more silver. And this time he sends the gold and silver with celebrities, these well-known big wigs princes. Maybe that'll impress Balaam. And he says, listen, not only will I give you this cash, I will honor you, Balaam. I'll make your name great if you just curse Israel. And again, he knows he shouldn't, but Balaam's like, man, look at all that gold. And it sure would be nice to be seen as an important prophet. He's offering me honor. And so he goes ahead and tries to curse Israel. Stands on the mountain, and, and he's going to try to curse Israel. And, and, he, and when he opens his mouth to curse Israel, out comes a blessing. Okay, he goes back and comes back again. He tries it again, second time. I'm going to curse Israel, and out comes another, a second blessing. 
Third time is a charm. He, he tries to curse Israel, and out comes a third blessing. And Balak at this point is like, listen, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm offering you good money to curse these people, and all you're doing is blessing them. But he says, I can't curse the one that God will not curse. But there's a lot of gold. And these princes that are with the gold look pretty important. And so when plan A didn't work, the prophet Balaam's greed motivates him to offer plan B. A stumbling block. A trap in order to make God curse Israel himself. You see, Balaam's advice to Balak was, okay, go back. Go back to Moab, get the most beautiful women of Moab, bring them back to the Israelites, and just tell the Israelites, listen, we're neighbors, let's be friends. Mikasa e sukasa. Our land is your land. Our food is your food. Our gods are your gods. And so when they, the idea was that when the Israelites, they won't, they won't, they won't, fall, they won't fall prey to this frontal attack of, of being cursed, but when they see the beautiful women, oh, and they taste the good food of Moab, they compromise. And if they compromise, Balaam knows that eventually God will curse them. He will discipline them for their un faithfulness. And so that's what Balak does. He goes to plan B. He brings back these Moabite women and the plan works. Sadly, in Numbers 25 verses 1 and 2, we read, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. Do you see what the teaching of Balaam is? Let me put it this way. The teaching of Balaam is small, incremental compromise. Small, often unnoticeable, seems harmless, compromise. You can hear it in Numbers 25. The, the, the Moabite women come into town, they're good looking, and we're just friends. We're just trying to be good neighbors, right? Time passes, goes from friendship to, oh, we've fallen in love. I mean, and this can't be wrong if we love each other, right? Love is love, right? I mean, besides, who's going to tell these Moabite women about God? Just think of this as evangelating. Small compromises. But before long, Israel found themselves waking up and bowing down to the gods of Moab. You see, if persecution, plan A, doesn't work, Satan uses plan B. The teaching of Balaam, small, subtle, incremental compromises that seem harmless, easy to rationalize. Now, when Jesus mentioned food sacrifice to idols, don't think about, he's not, he's not talking about going on the Safeway and ordering some hamburger. 
No, he's talking about joining a pagan celebration at the local temple that involved a feast. Paul, the apostle, talks about this very same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 8, he says, listen, if you go to the grocery store, don't worry about the food sacrifice aisles. No big deal. But if you, but if you go to the temple and participate in the, in the pagan rituals, that's a problem. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Because the temple, listen, this is, this is a little different than our world. The temple in Pergamum was not just a religious temple. The temple in Pergamum was where everything happened in the city. It's where you made business deals. It's where you made business transactions. It's where you hosted baby showers. It's where you hosted weddings and other events and other parties. The point is everyone in Pergamum went to the temples. It was just life, normal life for them. Going to the temples where these sacrifices were made, where the temple prostitutes engaged in their sexual acts, that was normal for the Pergamum people. That was everyday life, part of doing business. And so if Christians who perhaps before they were Christians once lived that way with their non-Christian friends became Christians and then had to pull out of those pagan practices, if they refused now to go to the temple like everybody else did, those Christians would be labeled weird. They would be seen as, oh, there comes the Pergamum Christians, holier than thou, can't hang out with us. And by not going to the temple, they would miss out on business deals. They would likely lose their job. They would lose friends. And so you can imagine some of these Christians living in Pergamum would reason, well, you know, going to the temple is just part of doing business. I mean, God wants us to eat, right? It's just a small compromise. But small compromises left unchecked is the teaching of Balaam. It is the way of the Nicolaitans. Friends, idolatry stems from our distrust or our rejection of God. This is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, they knew God. God, They knew God's love. They had a relationship with God. And so Adam and Eve were in the refuge of God. They were loved by God. They were safe in the arms of God. They were fully satisfied in their relationship with their creator. It wasn't until Genesis 3, when they chose to reject God, that they felt shame. And they felt insecure for the first time. That's what happens. When we choose self-rule over God's good rule over our lives, pushing God out of the picture leaves us to now care for ourselves. If God's not in the picture to care for us, if there's no God in our lives to find our value and our significance and our worth, well, then looking somewhere else seems not only reasonable, it also seems necessary. But these God substitutes, looking somewhere else now for what God once provided for us, are idols, counterfeit gods. Now, if we go out into the city center in Upper Marlboro, you're not going to find a temple to Zeus. You're not going to find a temple to Asclepios or calling for emperor worship. 
But America is idolatrous, much like Pergamum was, just different gods. So let me, let me just consider three gods, three idols that we see in our world today. Money, power, and sex. The world's way of thinking about money is based on the idea that money equals protection. If I can't take refuge in God, I gotta find it somewhere else. So having enough money means protection. We see this idea in Proverbs 18, verse 11. The rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. And so to be sure, poverty can be dangerous and having wealth can provide some measure of protection. You can buy insurance, you can buy extra food for when there's a food shortage, but the protection that wealth brings is short-lived. It is a wall of safety in their imagination. True security, true safety is found in God who rules every stock market, every job, every season. Now money is a, is a neutral tool. Money is meant to be a tool to provide for the needs of our family. It's meant to be a tool to provide for the needs of others as we give. But like any tool, it can be used for the wrong reasons. Friends, how do you view money? What's important to you? What, do you what, what, is it, what is easy for you to spend your money on? Because what your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Or does your heart rest, does your heart rest in God? He is my refuge, he is my security. Or does your heart look for safety in just a little more money in the bank account. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 warns us, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You think, I just gotta, I just gotta make this much and I'll be satisfied. You make that much and you're like, mm, maybe just a little more, a little more. And we, we spend our whole life never satisfied. That's what we see when the rich man comes to Jesus in Matthew 19 and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says to him, okay, listen, he, he, he invites him. He invites this rich man, just sell your stuff and come follow me. Oh my goodness, yes, right? Eternal life, the son of God saying, follow me. And what does he do? The rich man in Matthew 19 went away from Jesus, sorrowful. Why? Why did he... Why did he walk away from Jesus? The text says, because he had great possessions. Money had become his functional God. The world's way of thinking about power, another idol that we see, the world's way of thinking about power is based on the idea that power equals control. I mean, and who doesn't want some control in their life, right? When you look at tomorrow and you don't know what tomorrow holds, you don't know if you're gonna be able to handle tomorrow, it's natural for us to look for something in this world that has power, that will help us to gain control over the chaos of tomorrow. And so we look to something like a politician who has power or a political philosophy 
or a, a medical breakthrough or having more knowledge, another degree, more school, or always being the leader of a certain group to give us that sense of control. Whatever it is that offers that sense of control, we long for power in order to deal with or compensate for the insecurity that comes from being alienated from God. Friends, how do you deal with the unknowns of tomorrow? You don't know what tomorrow holds. How do you deal with the unknowns of tomorrow? Where do you go for help with the fear that comes from, the insecurity that comes from life feeling chaotic, out of control? Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Money, power, third God that we see, a third idol, sex. The world's way of thinking about sex is, is that the body is merely a collection of biological material. You're just a mass of cells. Therefore, sex is purely a biological act. So in light of that thinking, it goes like this. If you're hungry, what's the healthy thing to do? Eat. If you're thirsty, what's the healthy thing to do? Drink. If you desire to have sex, the healthy thing to do must then to be to have sex with who you want and when you want. In fact, it would be unhealthy, says the thinking, to not have sex, just like it would be unhealthy to not drink when you're thirsty. And this is not just today's way of thinking. This is, this is, the, this is the way that the people in Corinth in the first century thought about sex. Paul quotes that, that worldly thinking in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Food, it sa- they said, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, they say. And so they would then go with that logic and apply it to sex. But then Paul corrects them and says, yeah, sure, I agree. Food for the stomach and stomach for food. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so he says, you can't make that biological assumption that sex is just a pure biological thing. Your soul is involved. You see, God's design for sex is meant to be, he says, God, God created sex and he gave it as a gift. And it's meant to be enjoyed between a man and a woman inside a marriage covenant. It's that simple. Anything outside of sex inside a marriage covenant, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, lust, anything outside of God's design, a man and woman in marriage, is biblically considered sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. And this design of God is not some random thing. Oh, let's just go with this. It's not arbitrary. God's design for sex, a husband and a wife who are different and complementary, a husband and wife linked together by the loving bonds of a covenant promises of marriage has a purpose. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. It's God's design meant to paint a picture 
Your marriage is not an end in itself. If you're married, it's meant to paint a picture of something greater. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So as husband and wife come together in one, to be two people becoming one flesh, physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, in every way, their relationship depicts, it paints a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with his people. Christ being the church, Christ being the, the husband, the church being the bride, linked together by the loving bonds of the new covenant. It's not fickle love, it's covenantal, I'm not going anywhere, love. And so this marriage and your faithfulness in your marriage is meant to, is meant to depict that. It's not random, it's not arbitrary, it paints a picture. So those who argue that sex is Sex or looking at pornography is nothing more than just a biological act, like eating a hamburger. They're wrong. As one writer notes, there is no such thing as casual sex. No matter how casual people are about it, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. Friends, listen, biblical instruction on sexual self-control is not a killjoy. Jesus is not against sex. He's pro-sex within marriage. God's design is wise. God's design is good. And it is for our good. It is for healthy families. And it is for the glory of God in the picture that it paints. Do you see how the church in Pergamum was at risk of falling into idolatry? It wasn't the outward visible attack of persecution. They passed that test. It was this subtle, small compromises, the teaching of Balaam, the way of the Nicolaitans. It might have started with a desire to be a good neighbor to the Moabites, or to their, in this case, the, the people in Pergamum. But that friendship would become romantic fallen in love. And then one morning they woke up and found themselves bowing down to their gods. How did we get here? How did this happen? It didn't happen overnight. Small, incremental compromises. Heart is hardened. We don't notice it. It's subtle. It's the Trojan horse until it leads into idolatry. It happens with individuals. It can happen with the church. A church might start off sound and committed to biblical fidelity, but then over time, under cultural pressure, they may make small compromises out of a desire to be respected or liked by the world, small compromises on this doctrine or that doctrine. And they may say, well, it's, it's for the purpose of reaching people. But left unchecked, the compromises of a church makes that church lose its distinctiveness, its saltiness. And when a church loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless. Nothing more than a community center. So how does Jesus view such compromise 
individually or corporately of a church. How does Jesus see this? Verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What is repentance? Well, to repent means to change your mind. Or another imagery is it's to change your mind and to change your direction. If you're walking one direction, to repent means to do a 180. I was trusting this, now I'm trusting Jesus. I was living for this, now I'm living for Jesus. I did love this, now I'm loving Jesus. Repentance is a 180. It's a change of heart, a change of mind. And so he calls them to repent. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, David Wells defines worldliness as that system of values in any age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's a helpful, helpful definition of worldliness. It's that which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Friends, consider Have you excused small compromises at work? Have you made small compromises in your marriage or in your private life? Have you made compromises in what you watch or listen to and how you speak or how you think? Do your compromises, are are your small, subtle compromises beginning to make sin look normal and righteousness seem strange? If so, this is God's gracious warning to wake up and repent. Jesus' command to repent is loving. He comes to the church before it's too late, before they get caught in the stumbling block that leads to death. And so with his two-edged sword of his word, Jesus goes to war against the false teaching that threatens to destroy you and me. He goes to war against it because he loves you, because he loves the church, his bride. So repentance, this change of heart, this change of mind, this change of direction, it's essential. If, if we've made compromises, we have to repent. But repentance is not enough. If we just say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna repent of my compromise and then I'm gonna now use my willpower to live differently, that type of repentance is not enough. As one writer notes, repentance and rejoicing must go together. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. Repentance and rejoicing must go together. So that leads us to the third and final point. Point number three, learn to be satisfied in Christ. Learn to be satisfied in Christ. This is verse 17. 
Jesus says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's three images here, the manna, the stone, and the new name. And there's a, there's a, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what all three of these images mean, but I think, it's pretty, I think we can have a pretty clear idea of generally what it means. The hidden manna that Jesus refers to probably alludes to the jar of manna that they put into the Ark of the Covenant. You can read about, you can read about that in Exodus 16 or Hebrews 9. And the manna was given to the people of God as they made their way through the wilderness into the promised land. God was sustaining them. But I think Jesus referencing the hidden manna here is the manna is referencing Christ himself. Because just as the manna sustained the people in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, Jesus is the bread of life who sustains us, the church, as we make our way to the promised land of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. As for the white stone, in the first century, if you go to court and you're on trial, if the judge gives you a black stone, that means you're guilty. If at the end of the trial he issues you a white stone, it means you're not guilty. You're free to go. But the white stone is also used as a tool for invitation. So if you got a white stone from a friend, it was likely that you're invited to the feast, to the party, to something. You're invited to something. And so both this symbol of acquittal and invitation, I think, is wrapped up in this white stone. And then the new name written on the stone is most likely Jesus' name. We see this in chapter 3, verse 12, when Jesus gives his name to the church in Philadelphia. And we also see this name of Jesus written on the foreheads of his people in in Revelation 22, verse 4. The name of Jesus given to his people is a reminder that they have a new identity. You're still you, but now you belong not to the world. Now you belong to Christ He has redeemed you. He has purchased you. And so imagine, remember, the the Christians in Pergamum, they're surrounded by people indulging in every whim and desire for sex and food and money and power. And if they don't join in with the the non-Christians in Pergamum, they would be ridiculed, they would be put on trial, they would be excluded from social gatherings, and that would be discouraging and lonely. But the white stone and the manna are reminders that no matter what this world said, they belonged. And they had the approval of the one person in this universe that matters. You're mine, and you're not guilty. You're forgiven. And so while the world indulged their desires in search of contentment, but never really finding it. We are reminded with this, that we have food to eat that the world knows not of. And so we, as we gather each week to worship together like this, as we read our Bibles, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as we pour out our hearts to God in prayer with our families and as individuals and, and, and as a church, As we do these things, we feast on Christ by faith, the bread of life, who gives life to this world 
And over time, as we do this, and as we see God through the pages of Scripture, as we see life through the pages of Scripture, over time we learn true contentment, true satisfaction. And I say learn because contentment doesn't happen overnight. It's something that has to be learned. This past Wednesday I woke up, and for whatever reason I had a heavy heart, and and I had several concerns weighing heavy on me, and, I, and I, as soon as I woke up, fear was knocking at the door. It's an awful way to start the day, and your, your mind starts to race. You're wondering, how am I going to deal with this? Where am I going to go? And it's, it's just part of my discipline, part of my routine. I don't think about it, but before I have breakfast, I read the Bible, and I pray. So that's what I did that morning. And you know what? It was routine. Nothing sticks out. Read Second Chronicles, read from the Psalms, read the Gospel of Luke. That was my reading plan that day. Helpful, but nothing spectacular. I got my car, still felt heavy, burdened. Could hear fear knocking at the door. Drove my way to work, and I remember praying on the way to work, just pouring out my heart to the Lord. And by the time I got from my home to the parking lot, it's like the lights turned on. It's like God turned the lights on to what I had read in Second Chronicles and what I had read in Luke. And all of a sudden, I was looking at the same problem I, I did 15 minutes earlier, but now I was seeing God on the throne. And Jesus was bigger than the thing that I was afraid of before. And nothing changed in my circumstances, but I had feasted on the bread of life. And now I saw my problem through the perspective of who Jesus is, and I was able to launch into my day with hope and confidence, satisfied, because I had feasted on Jesus, the bread of life. And we do that every day. It's not just one day. We need, we need fresh mercy, fresh grace tomorrow. You can't live tomorrow on today's grace. Like William Henley, we want, oh, we want. It would be so much easier if I didn't have to have my quiet time and fight for faith. We want, like William Henley, to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our soul. That's why he, that's why he entitled his poem Invictus. It's the Latin for unconquered. We want to be unconquerable by life's problems. But the self-rule in Invictus, it has the ring of heroism, but it's a counterfeit courage. It's a delusion. The idea that you're the master of your own fate, it might feel good for a second, but it's a delusion that leads to death, not to life. Interestingly enough, years after he wrote this poem, Dorothy Day wrote a response to Henley's poem. And she said in her own poem, I have no fear through straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Amen. Friends, the world wants us to launch out on a path to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul. And it promises us, if you do this, you make these compromises and do what we say, you will find peace and satisfaction and joy. But it's like running on a treadmill, right? You can work up a sweat, but you don't get anywhere. You're never going to find true satisfaction in this world or what it offers you because you and I were made for something more than this world. God put eternity on our hearts because we were made to know and love and trust him. That's the only way we're going to be satisfied. And so the insecurity and discontentment that drives us 
we need to recognize this morning that, that, that discontentment comes from our alienation from God. Our insecurity comes from our alienation from God. And our alienation from God, our separation from God, comes because of our sin. Our sin has, put a, has caused a, a separation between a holy God and us, his people. We all have fallen short of God's glory. And Jesus doesn't mess around. He stands as a warrior king with a sword of judgment. It's a sharp sword. It's a sharp sword that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart and mine. And if we stand before God and give an account to this God with the sword of his word, with sin on our record, we're in trouble. Because the wages of sin is death and what we deserve is death and hell. But friends, that's why Jesus came. Not to stab us with the sword of his judgment, but to be stabbed on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be. On the cross, he, the sinless son of God, took upon himself our sin, the sins of those who would trust in him. And he took the penalty for sin. He died, and on the third day he rose again, and now he offers forgiveness, reconciliation. He offers a white stone to say, not guilty. A white stone to say, you belong. The world may reject you, but you belong to me. And he gives us the bread of life. He gives us himself that we might know satisfaction in him. It's interesting, it's ironic that we become conquerors, as this text calls us to, not by being the captain of our soul. We become conquerors when we have been conquered by Christ. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I pray that you submit to him today because being conquered by Christ sets you free with him as your master. Turn from your sin, turn from your self-reliance, repent, trust in Christ. And he will give you a new name. He'll put his name on you. He'll wipe away your sin. And he will give you himself in the beginning of satisfaction and contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us for yourself. We pray that you would have mercy on us and forgive us for the ways that we have made small compromises, thinking that it's no big deal. But Father, we thank you for your loving and gracious warning before it's too late to take those, those compromises seriously. Lord, help us to be a people who are holy, who are set apart, who flee from sin and run to Christ. We pray that you would cleanse us and make us whole. We pray that we would find our all in Christ that we would feast by faith on Jesus through your word, by your spirit, who is the bread of life. Give us your spirit, who is the living water that we may be satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.